Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And our good friend Marguerite Bowling is back with us today. Marguerite, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. It's always a joy to have you in the studio. Well, Kristen and I, we were talking yesterday in light of a lot of tech news this week about our own personal thoughts on technology and the question... Have you ever just thought about getting rid of all of it? Just chucking the phone, pulling the cords, and almost returning to like an off the grid. And how long have you actually ever entertained, like truly entertained that thought of, could I do it? Could I live without Google? In high school, I read uh, Into the Wild with Chris McCandless, who went to Emory University, and then I, too, went to Emory University. So the moment I had that in common with him, I saw how that ended. Like, he did not do well going <laughs> off the grid. So probably not. Um, I've never considered... I've done purge not purges, but the, uh, you know, going 30 days or Lenten promises. Yeah, fasting. Fasting, yeah. that's the word. Um, <laughs> and I've done that, and it's been good for my mental health for sure. But I think that the part of social media that I just can't ever give up is you're documenting your life in a way that you won't be able to do just by journaling, just by, you know, telling your kids or grandkids in the future. You literally have visuals and almost create a picture book of your life to look back onto. And I, I see memories and I'm reminded of things that I've forgotten. So there's that beautiful element of it. Is it a little addicting? Yes. Do you need to sometimes set reminders? Yes. But I truly have not thought about going off the grid in a long, long-term way really ever. <laughs> I'm a little more hardcore. I am really thinking about like Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest. Those are my guilty pleasures. Yes. And just really being like, I, I'm wasting so much time on these. And I, and I do it sometimes in front of the kids. And I'm really trying to be more mindful, putting down the phone, spending time with them, playing with them. Like, I'm not going to let – I see all this. I'm not going to let them have a phone anytime soon. <laughs> and they're certainly not getting on the social media apps. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that, that your kids are young. So like, that's good. Like, keep them off. I, you look at, you know, the three-year-olds that know how to work the iPhones better than I do. Yeah. I'm like, oh my oh. goodness, this is terrifying. Our in-home daycare, like they, uh, one time they were dropping off this three-year-old and he had a phone with him. I'm just like, this is insane. Don't <gasps> do this. Wow. That is insane. Well, it's, it's all a buzz in Washington, D.C. this week because on Wednesday, we saw the CEOs of Discord, Meta, Snap, TikTok and X all testify before Congress. Some of these individuals, um, such as Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Meta, has testified many times before, before members of Congress. But for others, it's their first time testifying. And the main question that they're looking at does specifically relate to kids and protecting kids on these spaces, specifically looking at child pornography that we know is on these social media sites. And what do you do about that? How do you stop that? How do you both have uh, a space where people can share ideas and it's not overly censored, but that also is protecting safety identity has proper guidelines. So there's legislation that's being considered around that. And it it's a big deal. And it's a problem that's not going away. And I think it's problems like that that then in turn caused me to ask the question of like, should I just get rid of all of it? <laughs> and I, I feel like I'm kind of in between you two where I, I've i thought about it, been like, okay, in this season of life, that's not practical. Like it's not practical to completely go off. But I could certainly cut back because you're right, Kristen. 
it's fully addictive. Oh, mm-hmm. it totally is. And I Instagram have that. Instagram reels are highly addictive. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah. The, in the settings, you can, you know, have reminders that kick you off and lock you out. But, you know, I always press OK, like 15 <laughs> yeah, yeah, more yeah. minutes. <laughs> it's bad. I've gotten better. But, yeah, it's a journey. It we're is on. a journey. <laughs> it is a full journey. Well, we, we're changing things up a little bit on the show today. We have a little bit of a different plan than usual. So, Kristen, go ahead. Let us know. What are we doing today? Yeah, for sure. Up on today's Problematic Women, we are shaking things up. And first, we are taking a deep dive into the current situation on the southern border. Then, Virginia is sitting down with the founder of the Network of Enlightened Women to talk surviving college as a conservative woman. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Mm, Excited for this one. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are sadly often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a reviewer rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. America's southern border has been exploding, is exploding. The situation is on fire. And there's multiple facets right now that are gaining a lot of attention. First, you have the ongoing border crisis itself that has in recent weeks, specifically in Texas, really developed into a state versus federal issue. And you've seen tension between the state of Texas that's trying to secure their border under Governor Greg Abbott. They are working to put in measures that will keep the border secure. So what we've seen in Texas is things like the National Guard has been putting up razor wire fences uh, all over the border. They've taken control of a park in Texas in the Eagle Pass area called Shelby Park that federal authorities have previously used as kind of a staging area and processing area for, for illegal aliens. And now Texas authorities have come in, Texas National Guard has come in and said, no, you can't use this area, this park, to process illegal aliens, to use for staging of illegal aliens. We have, we now have control of the park. And so there's this ongoing tension. It sort of all rose to the surface in a greater way just recently because the Supreme Court issued uh, a d- order. It wasn't like a full-on ruling, but there's an ongoing court case where you have Texas saying, hey, we have permission to put up razor wire, and the federal government saying, no, you don't. And so the Supreme Court weighed in, and they gave the federal government permission to take down that razor wire that Texas National Guard has put up. But they didn't say that Texas National Guard can't put up more razor wire. So in theory, you could have just a back and forth of Texas putting up razor wire to protect their border to keep illegal aliens out, and then federal authorities coming in and taking it down. So that's like major point of tension, number one, that is ongoing right now and really, really raising things to the surface. Then you have Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And I know you both have, (laughs) in both the capacities that you work in at Heritage, this is a situation you all have been following. But he is um, being accused, uh, and uh, there's a lot of evidence to support the fact that he has not been enforcing America's border and immigration laws. And you look at the situation at our southern border, and just since 
the start of the Biden administration, you look at America's borders, northern, southern ports of entries, in between ports of entries, there have been 8.5 million encounters on our borders. That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. And then just earlier this month, there was a closed door meeting that Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas had with Border Patrol agents. And it's reported that in that meeting that Mayorkas said 85%, 85% of the illegal aliens encountered are then released into the United States. So it's like, okay, 8.5 million encountered 85%. You go back to the Obama administration when you had the DHS, the head of DHS then saying, you know, if, if we get 1,000 a day, that's a really, really bad day. Well, in December, if you look at the average in December, we were looking at over 9,000 a day. It, it's it's unsustainable. So there's a, a huge push to remove Mayorkas uh, from uh, GOP members in the House and Senate, some in the Senate, uh, because they're looking at the situation saying, you're not actually doing anything. It's, it's your job. It's your job mandated by Congress to make sure our border is secure. You're not doing that. Hence the push to, to remove Mayorkas. And then this is an interesting situation. Do you all remember the trucker convoys during COVID? Oh, yeah. Canada was amazing. Great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. So we saw those trucker convoys during COVID. I think we've seen them around a couple other issues. It's, it's become this mark of freedom that the truckers, when they see an issue that they don't like, they rally together. And so there's actually three different convoys that are all headed Literally right now, as we speak, two different sections of the southern border. One's going to the border in California, another to the border in Arizona, and another to the border Saturday, where they're going to hold a rally. And they're, they're being very clear. This is a peaceful rally, but they're demanding border security. They're saying, hey, federal government, if you're not going to secure the border, for one, we're going to support Texas trying to secure their border. And by the way, federal government, it's actually your job to secure the border. So please do your job. And myself and one of our other colleagues here at the Heritage Foundation is actually going to be at that trucker convoy rally talking with the truckers about why is this such a big deal and why did you spend all week driving down to Texas in order to make clear that we need secure borders. But, you know, I, I report on border and immigration issues, so I kind of live in the weeds of this world. <laughs> But for you all, what has been some of the things that have stuck out to you as you're looking at this situation continue to, it feels like it was like kind of a, a normal size campfire a few years ago, and it's just grown and grown and grown. Well, I don't think this is just blundering from Biden. I think this is intentional. Um, Mayorkas isn't somehow negligent. He's doing this on purpose. That's, I mean, you shouldn't put intent in, but to me, it's like we're at a point where you're literally escalating to start a feud between Border Patrol agents and um, the National, or the, the Texas Guard. Yeah. You know, that's that's way more escalating any kind of uh, fight than, you know, what the media accused the Trump administration, you know, when they were dealing with the uh, the riots in cities. So to me, this just feels intentional and it's why – and people are starting to wake up to this and it's why it's the top issue in the in the United States. Mm -hmm. I think too what's so cool about the truckers heading over to Texas, not only is it just an awesome thing to watch, but, you know, 
we talk about violent crimes. We talk about the impacts of Im- immigrants, you know, illegal immigrants coming to our country. But we don't think about the little things that come with it. And just recently, I have almost been hit by people on motorcycles that mm. look a certain way. We're not going to profile them, but mm-hmm. you just have to question mm-hmm. what is this long term? Because those those people are coming from countries where traffic laws are different. So if we have such different cultures in that way, what are the truckers seeing? Are they seeing these people running out of their cars when they're being chased by police officers? We had colleagues go, I think, to Arizona, mm-hmm. and they were able to do ride-alongs. And they didn't see it, but they were told yeah. many instances where they ditch the car, just start running, have truckers seen that. So seeing these people make this supportive journey to Texas, you have to wonder if they're also doing it because they've seen firsthand things that Americans haven't. Like maybe we Mm. need more GoPros attached to truckers, like trucks, so that we can see what they see because we're here in D.C. and only feeling some of it. Um, Actually, it's funny, Chicago and New York are feeling more of it. A recent thing came out, the the mayor of Chicago, my hometown, um, has been hospitalized several times because of panic attacks due to the migrant migrant crisis impacts there. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's totally impacting low-income communities and ruining quality of life in Chicago. It's scary. They're shutting down schools. Areas are being overrun. It is... It is a humanitarian crisis that we've brought upon ourselves. It is. It is. And it's it's misleading when you say you, you don't give the full context and the narrative that it is the only compassionate option is to just let them in is inaccurate. It's yeah. it's false and it's misleading because there is a level of we recognize the fact that these people are so many of these individuals are coming because they want a better life. And that is accurate for so, so many of them. They're coming here for a better way of life. Well, so what? People from all over the world are coming to America for a better way of life. We ought to be able to screen and bring the best people in that are going to actually be U.S. citizens. They're not coming in here for asylum. They're coming in here for economic reasons, and they're usually getting handouts from the American taxpayer. That, that's the – yeah, Kristen, go ahead because no, that is the critical point. For sure. And let's let's look at these people that are coming for, quote, unquote, a better life. 300 people on uh, the terrorist watch list were stopped at the, the southern border. Um, we have – Yeah, that's just in one year. That's just in one year. We have a 600% increase in child and female sex trafficking. So I've heard a lot of people, and this might be a little too much, but compare this to the the slave trade, because that's literally what is happening, is we are bringing these poor, innocent, and vulnerable people, and we're not checking their DNA at the border. We see, uh, we, the border patrol agents who are very brave, and I, I you know commend them for their work. Um, they're doing the best they can, but they have been given these orders. Don't do DNA tests. So if the, in, in some cases, they are doing minimal DNA tests um, and things might come back and all three women with this one 28-year-old guy are unrelated. Mm -hmm. What are you going to, you know, take from that? There has to be accountability. There's got to be something. We've got sadly, you know, rape trees. We have... um, I think it was 112,000 Americans dead from fentanyl. And the thing is, Mayorkas will go under oath and say, we have control of the border. But what does that control look like? I'm about to pop off. Sorry. Well, there's there's actually, it's not debatable. There's a definition in law of what control looks like. And it's it's not what we have right now. Well, and is it control <laughs> under their far. definition? Because right. someone does have control, and it's the cartels. Yep. They have a system. They know who, when, and how those people are getting in. They are tracking them once they're in the interior United States because 
they owe them money for getting them into the United States illegally, and they're threatening their families at home. This is such a global problem, but the United States can't rely on partners because we're the responsible adult in this sense. And And that's the problem. We don't have a responsible adult doing this. We are not enforcing. We have plenty of border laws and ways to do immigration the right way. We are not doing any of it. And we're working against, you know, someone who honestly should be the Secretary of State. Let's go put Abbott in. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) God bless Texas. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I want to just highlight that critical part related to the cartels, because I think that people don't realize if you haven't been down to the border, if you haven't um, talked with the folks that deal with this on a regular basis, it's hard to recognize how sophisticated the cartels are, that this is a multi-million, billion-dollar industry for them of trafficking people Mm -hmm. and drugs. And we have had law enforcement tell us on the border, oh, it's way more profitable for them to traffic people into the United States or to smuggle people into the United States than it is drugs anymore. The, the dollar amount is so high. And that's where that's where you get these tragic situations where we're seeing increases in human trafficking and where we're seeing people who are being sold a bill of goods by the cartels and who have bought in. They're watching what's happening in America and the cartels. You better believe the cartels are using all the talking points of, oh, well, if you go to the United States and you go to New York City, you know, you'll be put on welfare and you'll get mm. free ha- handouts and you can stay at the Roosevelt Hotel. They'll put you up there. You, you have to recognize that their eyes are wide open. Why? Because it's driven by money. The cartels are making bank. They are the winners here. And they are using every single opportunity, loophole, whatever you want to call it, that the Biden administration has given them to get individuals illegally into this country. And it will not stop until there is real action taken. And it's literally you know, walls put up and saying, no more, we're not paroling individuals into the United States that say, hey, I'm here to claim asylum, but Marguerite, like you said, they're they're claiming economic asylum, which, yes, we recognize that is hard. Um, and there's other opportunities for them in other countries. And if they want to come to the United States, they have to go through the legal process. I mean, yeah, absolutely. When people were immigrating back in the early 1900s, they saved up, worked hard, sometimes sent fathers before the rest of the family. There were sacrifices that were made that weren't people or drugs. We weren't making those sacrifices the difference, I think, and and why this is so frustrating for me, and I'm sure you all agree, is there is such an easy solution, and Texas is implementing it. That's why 25 states have backed Abbott's actions. I don't think anyone's been added since that report came yeah. out. And then 10 states are sending you know, their own assistance, I think, via National Guards from themselves. And even the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, he was talking about his recent trip to Eagle Pass because he was saying four months ago, 3,000 people a day were coming into the border by um, Eagle Pass. And by 3 p.m. a few days ago, he had been there all day. No one was there mm. because that razor wire, it works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does. And it slices right. you up. If, if we did that along the whole border. Look at the Egyptian border. It has razor wire. They keep people out. You know, <laughs> yeah. we're the only country that's giving into this, you know, this sob story. But to your point about the immigrants coming in in the 1900s, they paused immigration after that big influx. It wasn't a nonstop, continuous invasion like what we're seeing. They paused it, and they expected immigrants to assimilate into this country. There's no expectation of that anymore. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, let's put the United States Love that. In, in a pretty dangerous position. It really has. And so f- make sure that you're following this week. If you want to get a little bit more of just an inside scoop on what is happening at the border and see some of the images for yourself, we will have content up on the Daily Signal social media. I'll be posting some stuff on Problematic Women's Instagram account um, because, like we mentioned, I'll be um, down in Eagle Pass both to talk to the truckers, uh, but then also just to look at what is happening and to talk to the folks down there that are dealing with this day in and day out. So, Marguerite, thanks for your insight on this issue. We really appreciate it. Thanks and for letting me rant. Us. Yes, <laughs> always. Do we feel better we now after this rant, rant session? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, stay tuned. Up next, we're going to be talking with Karen Lips. She is the founder and the head of the Network of Enlightened Women. But first, if you or someone you know works in higher education, You need to listen up. We all know that the academic environment is particularly challenging for faculty who research, publish, teach, or develop programs in areas that explore things like economic freedom, the dignity of person, human flourishing, constitutional governance, and national sovereignty, and other issues that are directly related to freedom, opportunity, and traditional American values. And funding opportunities for such projects, let's be honest, it's pretty scarce. Well, that's why the Heritage Foundation established the Freedom and Opportunity Academic Prizes. These are to recognize and provide financial awards to faculty at higher education institutions. Well, the deadline to apply is today. You have till midnight tonight to apply for one of these prizes Winners will receive a financial award of $15,000 in recognition of their past accomplishments, the importance of their current work, and their future promise in the academy, especially in relationship to public policy. So again, the deadline is today. It's your last chance to apply. In order to learn more and submit that application, you can visit heritage.org slash innovation prize. Again, that's heritage.org slash innovation prize. Okay, let's go ahead and bring in Karen Lips. It is my pleasure today to have Karen Lips with us on the show. Karen is the founder and president of the Network of Enlightened Women and the author of the book, You're Not Alone, The Conservative Women's Guide to College. Karen, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Well, as we're diving in, can you start by just explaining the mission of NEW or the Network of Enlightened Women? Yes, I started the Network of Enlightened Women or NEW when I was a student at the University of Virginia years ago. I was frustrated, like many young conservative women on campus, with the liberal bias uh, in so many of the women's programs. There's women's centers, women's studies departments, women's organization, but they weren't actually for all women. They were for a certain segment of women. And anyone who didn't march and lockstep with them might as well give their woman card back. They don't count as women. women. They're silenced. And so started new as a community for young women to have, young conservative women to have an intellectual home. In Virginia, there was a real need for it. Within six months, some students at William & Mary got a chapter started. And then it just continued to grow one chapter at a time because it turns out there's a lot of young women who were feeling that same frustration and isolation that I felt. 
Wow. Well, and I have to believe that that is only more so today. Karen, I, I won't ask you to share which year you graduated college. I, th- I think we're both about the same age. But what have you seen shift and change when you talk with young women today graduating college? What are the challenges that they're facing compared to what you faced? Are they quite similar or are you seeing some differences? Some similarities. But Virginia, one thing I'll mention that's been fascinating for me to watch is that when I was on campus, it felt like the feminists were more confrontational and willing hmm. to um, come to events. And then maybe they'd try to take them over or they'd try to, you know, make their point when a speaker was was talking. But now um, they've sort of taken on this view, many of them, that conservative voices shouldn't even be heard. They shouldn't have a platform that for some reason uh, words are violence and that any uh, giving them any voice is is a problem on campus. So there's more silencing pressure, I would say. And um, taking it a step further, you know, over the years, we've seen bias from faculty and administrators, but we're seeing this uh, trend emerge of students sort of wanting to be the dictators themselves and that they're really censoring each other. So, Virginia, as you mentioned, I run new. We're chapter based on college campuses. We're having more chapters come to us and say that their student governments, you know, the student councils that are run by students, they have the power to approve clubs on many campuses, and they're, re- they're rejecting applications for new chapters uh, for various reasons that, that don't seem that fair or relevant. Things like uh, at one school, they rejected the chapter because they said there was already a women's organization. Hmm. And that sort of makes the whole point, right, that we're trying to make that, hey, we need more than one organization for women. We don't all think the same. And actually having different voices is a good thing. Yep. <laughs> so yep. I think that that's a that's a troubling trend that we're watching and really figuring out how to how to address on campus. That is very telling. Well, there's no better more recent example that really highlights what's happening on college campuses than all the anti-Semitism that we have seen and the pro-Palestine protests. Of course, the resignation of Harvard's president, Claudine Gay at Harvard. It's, it's really sort of put a spotlight on some of these really extreme issues that we're seeing where the far left has just taken such liberties on college campus to really push an agenda and push it without any regard for other thoughts or opinions. I mean, looking at Harvard, for example, and the resignation of Claudine Gay, do you think that we might see a shift, that this could have been a line in the sand with all the anti-Semitism and people being really outraged by what's happening on college campuses? Or do you think it's just more of the same and these colleges are just going to keep on journeying down this path? Well, what's been happening on campuses is so awful. Uh, And Virginia, you use the word spotlight. And I think, I hope that that's the key that comes from all this is that finally people are paying attention um, when there's a spotlight on what's happening and that we'll actually see some more accountability and transparency on these campuses. Because for years, I've had students come to me and tell me about things going on on campus that are unfair or biased or problematic. And it seems like, you know, every once in a while, there'll be a big news story on, you know, like one thing on campus, but it dies down. But the Harvard story uh, and the anti-Semitism on campus, that's been a sustained story that's getting attention. And I hope it continues to get the attention that it deserves and that we see some results. 
But one negative thing that I think comes from the Harvard story is how long it took for her to resign, mm. because I think it shows that then it's not a one person problem. It really is an institutional problem. Uh, the board supported her there. She held on for a long time. And so I think that shows that it's not just her, but these institutions need more transparency. They need more accountability and we need big changes at them. And one of the ways to get that is for people, including donors and larger society, to just pay more attention to what's happening on campus. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book is it's, you know, the conservative woman's guide to college. So it's largely for young conservative women who are going to campus or on campus. But also uh, it, it sets up the state of play of what's happening on campus for, I think, parents who are interested and other folks who just want to know what is going on on our college campuses today that are supposed to be shaping our future mm -hmm. leaders. Let's go ahead and talk about the book. The title is You're Not Alone, A Conservative Woman's Guide to college. It's very practical. Starting off with sort of the big question of when when a young woman is getting ready to graduate high school, she's looking at colleges. Are there any colleges or universities that you would say they are just too far left? They should be avoided? Or do you think there's an argument to be made to actually maybe look for some of those far left colleges and universities and say, as a conservative woman, if you know, if, if you feel like you're ready for the fight, go ahead and go there, start a new chapter and try and be a part of the change? A great question. Uh, one of the themes that emerged from the book is just how important it is to be intentional. I think sometimes mm -hmm. when people are picking colleges, they might pick more so based on factors like their favorite school football team or a bunch of schools advertise water parks or <laughs> all year round snow mountains or these things that are exciting and might be attractive. But one of the messages I really want readers to take from this is you need to be strategic and intentional and think about what environment you are going to thrive in when you're picking a school. So I've got, I begin the book with a whole chapter on how to select a college. One factor I think should be taken more into account is being more cost conscious about college. Mm. Um, and in particular, that the college matters, but also the major that you pick matters and how that can influence your career earnings and your prospects. Another factor is, is the school a good environment for free speech? And one barometer for that is, has the school adopted the Chicago statement? So I think figuring out, is this going to be an environment that's open to free speech or Am I going to feel like I'm going to be silenced all the time? And I hmm. think it's hard to make the case to go to a school where you feel like you're going to be silenced all the time. Yeah. Now, we have had some students uh, in the book. I feature about 30 students and alums because I think it's so important to hear their voices. And I want to some of them took different approaches. And I think that's good to lay those out. So we had I share the story of a student at Baylor University who said she specifically wanted a more conservative cultural environment and picked Baylor and she's thrived there. And then I have a student, Jordan A, who picked Dickinson University, where she talks about how she became known as the conservative girl on campus. And she faced some attacks, but she also found an environment um, in which she could really engage civilly with folks and really developed, you know, a lot of skills on how do you deal with talking with people with different views than you and how do you learn from the other side? So I think there's different, you know, it's a menu of options out there for colleges, Virginia, and, and people can make their choices, but they should just go into them with their eyes wide open and make sure that the environment is going to fit an environment of, you know, what they're going to actually excel in. 
Yeah. Does does new um, maybe endorse is too strong of a word, but are there any colleges that for young people who are amassing a list that they're looking at who you would say, you know, I'm not going to tell you to go here, but these are maybe four or five colleges that you should really do a little research on. I think people have such varied interests that it's hard to, you know, like yeah. said, endorse one or two. But I definitely <laughs> encourage them to figure out, does the campus have an intellectual home for conservatives? Yeah. Um, and figure that out, right? Because you've got different schools where that's more apparent than others. And I think it's hard to go into an environment where you're the only one and you fe- you face such silencing pressure. Yeah, um, yeah. And we've seen over the years, um, we've had chapters thrive at more conservative schools like a Baylor, but also at big state universities like University of Florida um, and Ohio State University. So we've had them really thrive at other universities. It just is important to build that community. And that's another message from the book is that I want more women on campus to be in intentional about building that community. So that's going to the club fairs and finding the conservative clubs on campus, researching in advance before they go to school, what are the conservative clubs and following them on social media and just trying to be more intentional about that community. Absolutely. What are a couple tips that you give in the book related to navigating very far left professors that especially as freshmen, you often don't have a ton of choice over the professors who you have and you're going in a little bit blind. You might be able to figure out the longer you're on a campus, the professors to take or or avoid. But for students coming in who uh, wind up with professors that are not interested in a conversation and are really pushing a very specific far left narrative. How do you navigate that as a student? Virginia, that's such a challenge. Um, And I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that some of our students really grapple with. uh, And I imagine some of your listeners do, because it's really hard um, when you're in that student position and you have an unfair uh, liberal professor who's just biased and not kind of giving you the time of day. So I've got a whole chapter in there on dealing with hostile liberal professors. And it begins with a story of Peyton Smith, who when she was a student at Seton Hall University, one of her professors told her to be careful after she shared a more conservative view. And she just really felt that threat. And I think many students really feel that threat Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of intimidation from some professors. So in that chapter, I I give some tips. Um, One, again, going back to that point about being intentional, is trying to talk to upperclassmen to figure out which professors to avoid. Because sometimes, especially if you're at a big state school, you'll have a lot of options for classes and professors. And for some, it's just not worth engaging and they should avoid, quite frankly. Then for others, doing things like if you're going to write a paper where you're going to share a conservative view, can you cite a um, outspoken liberal to make a conservative point? So Barack Obama gave a speech uh, years ago um, on the value of free speech on campus, citing him or Bill Maurer, who has spoken on free speech. So trying sharing some tips about how you can try to make your points uh, more persuasive by citing liberals. Um, I think that's a that's a good tip. And then also picking when you engage um, and encourage readers to ask the question to themselves of, is it productive to engage on this point? Am I going to move it? You know, ask if they're going to move the conversation forward. What's going to do? Because I, I think mm-hmm. sometimes just speaking up to speak up isn't always, doesn't always serve in their best interests. But speaking up, really being prepared, making their point strongly can benefit 
not just themselves, but their classmates and can make it tougher for their professors to fight back. And then I always recommend that students make sure they're accurate on their sources uh, Mm because I think it is easy to read a headline, pull something, but really double checking the sources, make sure they're accurate when they're making that point so that they can't be tripped up by someone pointing out that that their point's not not accurate. I think that's mm-hmm. really important for conservatives because they'll get called out on it more on campus than liberals um, generally. Sure. Now, when it comes to students, of course, um, by and large, you look at how college students say that they lean politically and you have a much larger amount who um, identify with the political left. But I have a theory that if Ooh, I want to hear many, this, <laughs> that if many college students had the principles of uh, the kind of the left and the right broken down and they really understood what conservatism was, that many of them would actually say, oh, wait, no, I, I think I am conservative if they had it clearly explained to them. So I would be curious to know your thoughts on that theory. Do you think that that's true, that actually maybe many more college students are conservative than realize themselves that they are? (laughs) It's fascinating you bring that up um, because when I spent a semester at Harvard uh, Institute of Politics and taught, led a seminar there. And I remember some of the students coming up to me and saying they had never met a conservative woman like me. And I was thinking, what what is your vision of conservative women, right? (laughs) What is this image you you have? (laughs) Yes. And so I felt like part of my role was just to kind of normalize conservatism um, among young women. And so I think that I think a lot of students on the left have a view of yeah. conservatism that actually isn't accurate. Mm. And, and then the second point I'll make is uh, in the book, I um, make the case that hearing alternative viewpoints, hearing conservative views, it isn't just good for conservatives who then, you know, learn more about the nuance about th- in their arguments and can develop relationships with those speakers that can lead to jobs and internships at places like the Heritage Foundation. But also it's good for liberals to hear the other side. Virginia, when I was at school, I remember going to liberal speakers and you'd go and you'd think, oh, I've got this really tough question or you heard somebody else's question and think, oh, they really got that speaker, like they're going to win that sort of exchange. And they wouldn't, the speaker would win it. And then you'd go back and think, oh, okay, that's a strong argument. How do I counter that? Mm -hmm. And that's how you develop critical thinking skills. So I think liberal students miss out when they silence conservative voices. And then overall in society, it's really scary to think that we're raising a generation who can't engage civilly with each other. Right. Like society works better if we can acknowledge that there are differences and try to find some common ground, try to persuade each other, but go at it civilly. The sort of shutting down of speech really bothers me, as I imagine it does you as well. Um, And it's part of why you, you do this podcast is right, like showing that. Among women, there are alternative voices, and mm-hmm. these alternative voices matter. Well, I, I think the thing that I'm sure bothers you, bothers me, is that you look at the history of colleges and universities, and it, it was to develop critical thinking. It was to have in-depth conversations and exchanges where you really hashed out what is the truth around certain topics, ideas, and the fact that that's now the exception and not the rule on college campuses is really discouraging, which leads into my next question, which is we kind of hear an argument 
increasingly and, and often from the right that because so many college campuses are so politically left that maybe it's for many people, it's not worth going to college anymore, that they should consider an alternative path. What are your thoughts on that? To what extent do we continue plowing forward and kind of trying to fix the problems? And to what extent do we maybe leave it to the ruin? Well, I acknowledge in the book that college isn't for everyone. And I don't I don't think yeah. everyone needs to go to college. But the book's for those who are, have decided to go to college and is a roadmap for trying to make the most of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think you're right that not everyone needs to go to college or should go to college. And then as a society, we should be promoting other options as well as a pathway to success, that it it shouldn't just be college and that the credential in many cases doesn't matter for certain careers. Mm -hmm. Well, Karen, for those who are called to college, who are either in college right now or they're considering going to college or they have a sister or a child who's in college themselves, what would you say to them in regards to getting involved with a new chapter or maybe starting a new chapter themselves? How would they do that? And if there's a new chapter on their campus, but they're a little hesitant to join a new club, share with them what the experience of being a part of a new chapter is like, what it entails. Being part of the community of new um, is important for young women because it gives them that intellectual home. It gives them that group of like-minded women uh, with whom they can grow and also just develop those friendships. So I would encourage your listeners uh, to check out our website, www.enlightenedwomen.org, where they can look on the chapters page, see if we've got a chapter there. And if so, jump right in. Becoming part of a chapter means that you get invited to go to fun social events, intellectual speakers. Many of our uh, chapters have hosted speakers from the Heritage Foundation on different topics. Um, You'll get invited to some of our national programs. uh, If you're in leadership, including our leadership retreat, we provide scholarships to different national conferences. So it's a great community to join, not only for the friendships, or for the intellectual kind of development through the book clubs and policy papers that you read, but also for the career opportunities. So it's a great community to join. And if you don't have a chapter, I would encourage listeners to start one. You just need to find um, some other women on campus who can form your executive board. And we've got a team um, at New National who's prepared to walk alongside you and help you get that chapter started. And you'll be amazed at at where it can lead. We've had some of our students intern at Heritage, um, and then that's led to career opportunities. We've had students who worked at the White House and at Fox News Mm -hmm. and at Fortune 500 companies. And we've been delighted to serve as references and recommendations for them. So we really enjoy trying to educate and train young women to be leaders. And we'd be excited to work with you. So I'd encourage you to, to sign up and reach out and get involved. Mm, I love that. I love that New serves not only as that community, but also as as a launch pad for women thinking about their career, what they want to do when they graduate, that there is such a beautiful opportunity to build some of those skills, to build relationships for the workplace. And I really want to encourage all of our listeners, whether you would like the book for yourself, you know someone, a young woman in college who would like the book, pick up a copy of You're Not Alone, The Conservative Woman's Guide to College. It's a real encouragement. Karen, I love that you've included so many stories because I think it gives hope of, okay, other women have done this. I can do it too. So thank you for writing the book. Thank you for being with us today and sharing about the work 
that you and all of the amazing women at New are doing. We really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you, Virginia. As you mentioned, uh, listeners can get it on Amazon. And one of the tips I included in the book is to make sure to curate your news and find podcasts to listen to like Problematic Women. So thanks for all you do, Virginia. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Karen. Five days a week, two episode formats, one mission to deliver the news you care about and analysis on the biggest issues facing America. The Daily Signal podcast brings you two episodes every day in the same podcast feed. Each morning, catch interviews with policymakers, leading experts, and conservative activists as we discuss some of the greatest challenges facing our country and offer solutions for a brighter future. And every weekday at 5 p.m., we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines you care about. Subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss out on our morning interviews or evening news. Now, it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to all of our college ladies listening who are involved in new chapters. If you are a college lady or previously were in college and were involved in a new chapter, we want to say, hey, you are bold and we so appreciate the fact that you have stood for conservative principles on your college campus and you've pushed yourself to be in community in a network of women who are valuing traditional values and who are seeking to grow both their their knowledge of conservative principles, their knowledge of what it means to be a conservative woman. That is awesome. We are so thankful for Karen Lips for the work that she's doing at New. And we're so thankful for women all over this country who have taken that step to say, hey, we're going to get involved and be a part of this movement on our college campuses of furthering the principles of freedom and learning about those principles through a new chapter. I mean, colleges are just the environment nowadays, man. They are not necessarily welcoming, even (laughs) though the brochures might seem that way. (laughs) So The pictures look nice, but it can be a rough territory for conservatives. Yeah, so you have to find those people you share values with, and and you can do that, actually, by checking out their website, enlightenedwomen.org. I'm sure Mm -hmm. that was plugged earlier, but... Yeah, yeah, make sure you check it out. And if your college does not have a new chapter, there's lots of information on the website about how you can start one and be a part of the change. Be a part of the change. We love love it. it. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, with that, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world. So we would so appreciate you taking a minute to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And remember, if you want to see Virginia's trip to Texas, there's going to be a ton going on. Really excited. Go check us out on Instagram. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.